Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Did you know that Mayor Muriel Bowser has five deputy mayors? These deputy mayors serve a critical role in the functions of district government by overseeing various clusters of agencies that have similar goals and purposes. Think health and human services or planning and economic development. October is Public Safety Month in the District of Columbia. So today we're going to talk to Kevin Donahue, who is the district's deputy mayor for public safety and justice. Kevin is also the district's deputy city administrator. In both roles, he brings an analytical approach that uses data and evidence to deliver tangible results to the residents of D.C. Of course, that's something we at the lab care very deeply about. Deputy Mayor Donahue, welcome to the podcast at D.C. It's great to be here. Now, we're very happy to have Kevin Donahue here, both as the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice in the District of Columbia and the Deputy City Administrator. A fun fact that I wanted to share is that when I was on the job market after grad school, someone once described me as a young Kevin Donahue. And I take that as a huge compliment. And so we're very happy to have you on the podcast at DC. I think I know that individual who called me and says, I've come across a young Kevin Donahue. (laughs) To that point, I think I said, well, I don't want his resume. (laughs) But I did think it was nice years later. I actually called this individual when I realized you were going to come work here and said, his name is Scott. I said, Scott, guess who I'm going to work with? (laughs) And so it shows it's a very small world, particularly the geeky data circles are very small. Absolutely. Well, so before we talk about your current role or even your professional roles, where did you grow up and what was your early life like? I grew up in Miami, Florida, which most people who know me are shocked when they learn that which I attribute to my lack of style. But I spent my first nine years in Miami, Florida, and to this day have a hard time with cold weather. And I moved around a few times in rapid succession after the age of nine. And then when I got to 12, my parents moved to Bangkok, Thailand, where I lived until I went to college. So I had a long stay in Miami, a long stay growing up in Bangkok, a few places in between that was done in pretty rapid order. And when I left Thailand, I came to Washington, D.C. So when I'm talking to community members who don't know me, I will often introduce myself and say I moved to Washington, D.C. 30 years ago, which except for a five-year gap, I've been here almost that entire time. What sort of careers or other commitments did your family have that you moved to spend all that time in Thailand? My father was an accountant for Exxon, and you go where the job goes. And they have offices in sunny locations, so uh, Miami and Thailand were my two longest days. Nice. Probably better than the North Sea or <laughs> it's, yeah, Siberia so. options or anything <laughs> like that. It would be much better than that. And what was that like when you were growing up to go from the U.S. to somewhere literally on the other side of the world? I think it was an incredible experience, and I knew at the time it was incredible. It was not just something in retrospect that I appreciated. I think if everyone is fortunate enough to be able to have their kids spend formative years outside the United States for a few years, it's very helpful. It certainly gave me perspective. When I only have a few moments to tell people about that experience, I say that when I moved to Bangkok at the age of 12, there was about 4 million people in the city. When I left about six years later, the population had more than doubled. And can you imagine when we talk about growth in this country of cities, even Washington, 1,000 people a month. Can you imagine, you know, if I do my math right, you're talking about 100,000 people maybe in a given month moving into the city. People would live wherever you could find space. I was fortunate enough to live in a nice sort of 12-story apartment building, but every plot of land around me was crowded with people trying to make homes out of whatever material they could find. And having exposure to that poverty, exposure to a country going through such rapid development was an eye-opening experience for me that I've taken with me ever since. Hmm. So when you moved back to Washington, D.C., for you said it was around college? Yep. I went to Georgetown. When you're applying to colleges from 12,000 miles away, 
I was geographically neutral as to where in the country, but I knew Washington was the capital of the United States, and I wanted to study government and what better place to be than where the national government was located. So that's about all that drove my preference, and I went to Georgetown and then liked Washington, the nation's capital, and found that I also liked Washington, the local city, and wanted to make it my home. And where did the interest in public service come for you? Like, how early on did you know that that's what you wanted to either focus on in college or potentially make a career out of it? Certainly, it was in Thailand. I mean, living in a country going through such rapid development at the time was also going through fairly rapid democratization at the time frame I was there. And I got to see up close the power that government could have to do good and to help. And I think that very much energized me to want to be involved myself. But my career didn't start in government. I actually came into government after being in the workforce for about eight years. So I had an interest. That's what I studied in college. That's what I studied in grad school. But my jobs before grad school and after grad school were actually in consulting, not at all related to government. What sort of work did that entail for you? Most of the work I did was for clients who were trying to explore new markets, usually private service or product companies. It was a lot of data analysis involved. And so my early work working with data was doing that. And I went into it because I racked up a lot of student debt. And it seemed like a faster path to being able to pay off my student debt, Mm -hmm. both after college and after grad school. And so I went into government in 2002 after, at that point, You know, I had been in the workforce for about eight years, combining the time before grad school and after grad school. Why make the shift? Did you get it all paid off or was it something else? (laughs) No, it's funny. I did pay a lot of it off, but then they had a program back around 2000 where you could refinance your student debt at very low interest rates. The catch was there were very, very long loans you were now refinancing into. So I managed to actually get my student loans refinanced to a point where I could really pursue a career in government. The bad news is that like to this day, I'm still paying off those student (laughs) loans, but the interest rate is still outstanding. It was actually, I had a consulting project where I was working with one person and we were, like you often do, you're staying up late, working hard for a presentation to a client the next day. And the client was a bank. And We had been working long hours for a number of weeks leading up to this presentation. And there was actually a moment, it was probably around 11.30 at night, um, where I was really exhausted. And the individual who was my team member for this client was deeply passionate and enthusiastic about the client being successful. Like she was really motivated to keep working till dawn based on her commitment to what that mission was. And I was really exhausted and just wanted to go home. And in that moment, I realized that she cared a lot more than I cared about whether we were going to be successful the next day. If we were unsuccessful, I would have gone home as content with my life as I did when I woke up, and she would not have been. And I realized in that moment that I had studied something that I wasn't working in, and I probably wasn't going to be very successful in this career if the people I was working with and in that field competing with for partnership slots were motivated much more deeply than I was about the success of the work. And so our company, after the dot-com bubble burst, Around 2002, our company asked for voluntary layoffs to try to cut costs, and I was one of the first people to raise my hand and volunteered for it. I wanted to make sure when I then went into changing my career that I burnt the proverbial bridge behind me, (laughs) that I had to have the hunger of not having an income to be able to drive me and motivate me to change my career. So willfully (laughs) made sure there wasn't a backstop there. What was your first role in government? It was the D.C. government in 2002 for the D.C. Department of Transportation. And it has helped me ever since coming to the mayor's office now for two different mayors that I actually started my career at an agency and I worked Mm. at an agency for a number of years. And I came to do operations improvement. The Department of Transportation had been part of the Department of Public Works at the time, which at that time had... I think consisted of what was now probably four or five different separate agencies, but it spun off the transportation functions. And so I was part of the initial team supporting the director of trying to create a new department out of what was a division of a bigger agency. And that was my first job. It was about six months into that job that 
uh, I was asked whether I wanted to take on the performance management function as part of my portfolio. And I was really excited to, and I had no idea then the long-term impact that would have in my career interest and career path. But I liked it because it was data, which I enjoyed playing with from my consulting days. And it was measuring how well the government's doing, which is intrinsically interesting to do. And I could combine the skill I thought I had with an interesting part of the mission of that department and be effective in it. And so I volunteered for that and I wound up really enjoying it and allowed it to take on a larger and larger part of my workday. So that would have been 2004-ish, is that? Or? Uh, 2002, I started. 2002. So 2003, I think I took on the performance management portfolio. So now like 15, 16 years ago then. What do you think of as being performance management? I take a very broad definition. I think if someone is intentionally thinking about data and the use of numbers to help inform decisions that they're making and assessments that they're doing, that's performance management. So intentional plus data applied to a mission, if it meets that threshold, then I count it as performance management. There are others that will have a much more elegant nuanced definition, but I like to deliberately take on a much more accessible definition of what it means. Hmm. And so what did that mean in DDOT at the time? Did you change things? Were you stepping into something that had already been constructed or did you apply kind of a new mindset or a new framework to it? So at the time in DC, the legacy of bankruptcy was still fresh. So I take on the portfolio in 2003. In 1996, 1997, you really have the city going through a deep financial crisis. So out of that crisis emerged an intent on the part of the city to have a strategic plan for every agency, which had not existed before, at least not consistently across the whole government, to have measures within that strategic plan and to have a performance-based budget. That was the strategy at the time. So to have measurements associated with the different budget programs. And there was actually quite a bit of energy around it because you had the bankruptcy that took place so recently at that point in time. There was actually a tremendous amount of attention and interest in trying to measure the budget because the city's financial health was still very delicate at the time. Hmm. We had only recently emerged from not being able to be solvent. And there was a lot of energy, therefore, around putting performance management to work to help in that cause. How would you compare or contrast the environment in D.C. government then versus now or the approach to data or performance management at that time versus what you see now? I don't ever claim that how we use data now is fundamentally better or worse hmm. than it was 15 years ago. The time is different, and so the way I judge is different. What is very different is the availability of data and the availability of analytical tools to be able to take raw materials and do something with it. Mm -hmm. So I think we have far more of those raw materials now than we did before. There are some areas where we have less, but for the by and large, we have more access to data because we're capturing more of our activities in an electronic means. We're storing it in a more consistent fashion. We have analytical software that we just didn't have before. And so if you think about like, if you suddenly have more of that material, we are much better equipped to be able to more effectively inform the decisions than we used to be. Mm -hmm. And whether or not we always use those raw materials is up to us. But there's a much greater potential to have a much bigger impact with what analysis can do than it was when I started doing this work 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the bankruptcy driving performance management at that point, can you say a little bit more how that played out on the ground, either in the district or specifically in DDOT? Sure. There was a small team that worked for the city administrator, not unlike we have now, but they worked with the CFO to do a couple of things. One is to just have a consistent framework for what strategic plans should look like. So what's the goal? What's the mission statement? What are strategies and what are not strategies? And then how you should use metrics. What are workforce metrics? What are input metrics? What are outcome metrics? So they helped educate the workforce and create expectations about having balanced scorecard metrics. Now, the way that the bankruptcy informed that is that at the time, the measurements were oriented around how the budgets were constructed. 
you know, the way that the budget's constructed around programs and activities may not resemble how it's organized in terms of divisions and functions. It may not resemble how people think of what that agency does. But when we made a choice at that point in time around what are we going to connect those metrics to, it was the budget construction because we wanted decisions specifically to be around resource allocation and return on investment of the resource allocation. So then your work in DDOT, did that then carry you into the Office of the City Administrator? In the so I did that for at least four years, if my math is correct. And then my boss at the time, who was the director of the D.C. Department of Transportation, he became the city administrator under a new mayor at the time, Adrian Fenty. Hmm. And the mayor at the time then asked me to start up a new program called CapStat that was going to be modeled on work that Mayor O'Malley was doing in Baltimore called CityStat, which at the time a lot of cities would go to Baltimore and see what it is that Mayor O'Malley was doing and try to adapt that principle and program to their own city. And, and that's what we did in D.C. starting in 2007. Tell us a little bit more about the approach to doing cap stats during the Fenty administration. Uh, well, I went up to Baltimore and I watched CityStat happen and I realized one of my first important lessons of any performance management, and that is how much you have to orient what you're doing around the personality of the highest ranking executive in the room. Hmm. And I mean that as a way of strengthening the program. So if you have something that at one level is what worked elsewhere, but you don't have the same mayor or don't have the same governor or don't have the same chief executive, it's not going to work. You really have to orient the program around the person. So when I went to Baltimore and I saw CityStat happen, to me, when I left that hour with, I, I saw less a program that had a, it had some very transferable elements but 80% of what I saw was a program that over, at that point, eight years had really evolved around the leadership style of one person. Hmm. And it was very, very effective for that person. And I had to then craft this performance program around my mayor and gauge what he liked and didn't like. So when he was inaugurated on January 2nd, he gave me, I think, eight days to do the first capstat, <laughs> which to him was being very generous with me. <laughs> he wanted it, I think, on the day he was inaugurated, but he gave me a few days. And it was winter in D.C., so he wanted to do it on readiness for snow. And so we did the Capstat, and we had eight days to prepare on whether we were ready for snow. That week taught me a lesson that was then reinforced many times. And that was, you don't need a lot of data to have data make a big impact on policy and operations. But you need the right data. You need the right analysis. Mm -hmm. So in eight days, you can't do a deep, elegant assessment of an operation. But you can talk to people who work in the field, and you can listen to them. Hmm. And you can, from those conversations, quickly have an understanding about what the most important metric to look at is. And if you think about those cap stats, what cap stat is really to this day is it's a conversation informed by data with the right set of people around the room uh, and taking on an issue that is important with decisions. So you have the right people. You have just enough data to have a common factual foundation for the conversation with some analysis around it. And if you listen to people who work in the field, you will quickly realize where the nuance is in the data and then where you apply your analysis to that nuance. And you have to have an issue that's important with the decision, not an issue that's important that's just interesting to talk about. But ultimately, you're trying to make decisions better. And the decision is that third leg of the stool. And I could do that in eight days. And we had our first cap stat. He brought in the media. So not only had no one done this before, but they had TV cameras from the local news filming it it wasn't filmed and then given to them. They were in the room recording it live. They would air the footage later in the day, but if it went sideways, they'd keep recording. There's no redoing it. And while it went well enough that I got to a second cap stat and ultimately wound up doing them on a very regular basis, trying to keep with the three-legged stool of a decision that's important, just enough data and analysis, and the right set of people around the table. Hmm. So as the CapStat program evolved during the Fenty administration, were there any really big 
events that stood out to you as a success of the program or the ones that you thought were the most effective and most likely to have an impact on DC residents? There were several. To this day, there are programs that were decided upon at the Capstats. The city now has a 10-year-old mural and graffiti program that started in a Capstat when at the time the city had a lot of tagging, not often gang tagging, but taggings from graffiti artists wanting to make their impressions. And we wanted a response that would then sort of empower artists and take some ownership of graffitiing artistic paint going on the sides of buildings and walls. And that program started at Capstat. Probably the most impactful is the city started its permanent supportive housing first program in that period of time of 2007 to 2009. There was this old sense that you had to earn your way into showing that you could sustain the investment the government would make in housing you. So maybe you had to be off of substance abuse. Maybe you had to sustain an income. Permanent supportive housing flipped that on its head. It recognized that you can't expect someone to achieve those things in their life if they don't have stable housing. So the principle here is to give someone housing first, then have services come to them where they are, and you'll have much better outcomes if you first have the stable housing, then you ask them to change their life instead of doing it the other way around. And at the time, that was a new policy initiative, and we applied it really specifically, trying to free people up from having to live in a really inhumane daily shelter. And we had a large men's shelter at the time in downtown Washington, the Franklin School, which was in just terrible, inhumane conditions. And the mayor set a date. That was his date. It was arbitrary but aggressive. And we were going to close the shelter by creating 300 permanent supportive housing units for the first time in the city. And there were 300 individuals who were there. So we're going to close it without losing any capacity but creating more capacity in the community. And we had a cap stat maybe with nine months prior to that deadline. About four months later, we had a second, and we hadn't housed anybody. So the mayor realized he needed to have more cap stats. And so we had one. Then about a month later, and we had housed 13 people. And that's when the mayor realized that we only had a couple of months left, and we had to house almost 300 people in a program that was entirely new. And so he started to do weekly cap stats. And the principle there was not that the data would transform in a week, but he wanted a constant drumbeat of accountability Mm -hmm. on one data metric that for this project was our bottom line, which is how many people have you put in permanent supportive housing. And then the number of agencies around the table grew. We started to include DC Housing Authority, Hmm. who played an important role in that process. And when we got down to the last two weeks, he actually would have three cap stats a week. And it might have been 20 minutes long, but we had the same data set. And there was pressure to have creativity and to recognize ways to remove barriers that you once thought were there. And that taught me a powerful lesson, which is the essential nature of coming back to an issue again and again. Mm -hmm. That you don't even have to have new data. You have to renew the sense of accountability and interest that the people doing the hard work in the field recognize that this isn't a passing interest on the part of the folks in City Hall, that this is something we have sustained interest in. And sometimes the data analysis is simple, and the premium is on repetition. Mm -hmm. There are other issues where the premium is on the nuance of your analysis. But I find that Uh, More often the case, the analysis can be straightforward. The repetition and consistency of attention is what will drive change. Let's talk about where did you go from the Fenty administration onward? So my boss, the city administrator, got a job as an assistant secretary for management of the Department of Treasury for the federal government. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to have an appointment in the Obama administration. And so I looked at that as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I left D.C. government to take a similar role in the Department of Treasury. And what I wanted to answer for myself at the time is I thought I had lightning in a bottle with Capstat, a mayor who loved to use data and use it to make decisions, and a method at that point where we could do it at a really high rate of frequency. And I didn't know if that was something unique to the circumstances here. And there was a need and an offer when I went to Treasury of supporting, at the time, the Deputy Secretary and seeing if we could bring some of these principles of data 
performance management, sustained interest, and help the deputy secretary manage more effectively the very large organization of the U.S. Department of Treasury. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to answer that question for myself professionally of whether I could adapt myself and this product to a completely new setting, supporting someone who I had no relationship with at the time on issues that I had no exposure to. Mm. And that was an exciting opportunity above and beyond the privilege of working in the Obama administration. Mm. What was the new challenge that you were trying to adapt your CAPSTAT model to? The challenge for secretaries or deputy secretaries in large federal agencies is that you often have two jobs. Your one job is you are the shadow secretary and you're working with issues of policy, of legislation. And at the time, in the end of 2009, early 2010, when I went over, you had a deep financial crisis. So economic policy was the issue of the day. But you're also, if you're the deputy secretary, you're also asked to manage an organization of, for Treasury, 110,000 people. For other agencies, it might be 300,000 people. And you still only have 24 hours in your day. And this presents, I think, for anyone at that level, a challenge of wearing two hats. Some agencies at the federal level have split that into a deputy secretary for essentially policy and one for management. But that was more the exception than the rule. And so in my case at Treasury, it was one person who had been a senior manager in the financial industry. And almost everything he was going to do, given where we were in our country's history, was going to be aimed at financial and economic policy. So I tried to adapt the program to allow for him to easily be the COO of a really large enterprise, when in reality, he probably had very little time to spend managing that operation. Hmm. And how'd it go? Interesting you asked that. So <laughs> my first cap stat for Mayor Fenty was a great success because we pulled it off somewhat seamlessly with the pressure of TV cameras there. I did not have that same experience twice. <laughs> so my first, we call it treasury stat. At the Department of Treasury, we have spent months developing a template, working with the bureaus to populate the template with data, with mission, with goals. And the idea was the first meeting would be a set of Treasury stats, one with each bureau, that looked at existential questions of performance management. What is your mission? What are your goals? How do you measure success? How are you operating your budget, your procurements, your vacancies, et cetera? And so we had developed this template that I thought was very thoughtful and I thought was sure to have a really productive meeting. So in the very first meeting, which was done in a room at the top floor of the old Treasury building, we had a set of simple rectangular tables that we had constructed to a square. And the deputy secretary was sitting in the middle of one of those sides of the square my immediate boss, the assistant secretary for management, was on one side. I was on the other side. And then you had a bureau of treasury, and you had some support from treasury headquarters on the sides as well. So he gets the slides, he turns to the first page, and he stops, and he's silent. And he scrunched his eyes, turned a little red. And his first question was, who did this slide? And if I couldn't tell from the nonverbal language that it wasn't going well quickly, I could tell from his first utterance in my very first treasury stat that <laughs> the attention is on me. And I quietly, tentatively sort of raised my hand and said, me, sir. <laughs> and I think the next sentence out of his mouth was, what the blank were you thinking when you put this together? <laughs> and I stumbled my way through a response and the first 20 minutes became a critique of all the things I got wrong constructing the slide deck. And then after 20 minutes, he turns attention to the Bureau, which at this point I think was deeply relaxed about <laughs> what their experience was going to be relative to mine. And the truth will come, are we going to get to a second Treasury stat? About two weeks later, we got to our next Treasury stat. And I experienced five minutes of pain, not 20 minutes of pain, <laughs> of all the things I got wrong. But by the third one, we really were fully focused on the matter at hand. We would do it once a week for eight weeks and then take about eight weeks off, which is an enormous amount of time to spend 
allowing data to be used to inform decisions around running the operation of a department when there's a lot of other things competing for that hour of time. Cool. So you have your treasury stat structure basically up and running, but you're working on it in the midst of the financial crisis. How is the work of treasury stat helping to support treasury during that time? I think that it allowed for time to manage the operations of the agency. At any federal agency, particularly some of the larger agencies, and especially during moments of crisis, issues of policy dominate one's time if you're at a very senior level. But for many of them, they have dual hats, them being either a deputy secretary or an equivalent position. You're both managing the day-to-day operations of large bureaus, and you're expected to perform policy work and change policy in the country. So the Treasury stats, I think, came to reflect an hour that could really be focused on the management of the enterprise called the Department of Treasury with its bureaus, which doesn't come naturally. It requires discipline because the natural gravitational pull of a department like that is going to be to policy and legislation. And will you say a little bit more about what you wound up narrowing in on as the regular components of Treasury stat while you were there? Well, I learned quickly that for an organization that large, we couldn't just recreate the data for each topic differently like I did in Capstat, which is very much organized and engineered around specific instances and scenarios. At Treasury, we always had the North Star be the mission and strategic goals of the Bureau. Hmm. When the first sessions really were spent trying to reform and update some of those mission and goals. Out of that, there is project work that are the priority projects for the course of the year that they have funding for, that they have direction for. And so we would spend a large portion of the time having updates about the status of those projects and also looking at what barriers that exist that they have to untangle or that we can help them untangle to help speed up the implementation of those projects. One of the lessons I learned working in a big, big organization is you can't waste any time arguing over data. If there was an argument over the data and the quality of what we were looking at and what is fact and what is not, the blame is always with the person organizing that meeting. So it was on me. Hmm. The data facilitator, their job is to not talk about data, but talk about what the data means and what to Mm -hmm. do with it. Some of the most intensive parts of the preparation was trying to find an agreement about what the data really is and what it's not. It's fair to have discussion about what it means, but if we're going to have a debate in front of the principal executive around whether the data is valid, then that's a waste of everyone's time. How do you do that beforehand? from having that data drama spill over into the treasury stat meeting? One, you have to talk about data and you have to have that conversation. You have to really have a very open relationship with the person to understand if they have questions about the quality and veracity of what you're going to put in front of the executive. Second, if you are going to go forward knowing that there's disagreement, do it very rarely and you have to have a strong principled reason for having it in there. Ultimately, if I thought that we could not come to resolution with a bureau or division, and I know that's a waste of time, nine times out of 10, I'd try to find some other way of eliciting that conversation without using that data point. Hmm. So beware the uselessness of debating methodology when you have a decision maker who wants to talk decisions. So what happened after Treasury for you? Where did that take you eventually? I had a brief stop at the General Service Administration, which is the agency that is most known for handling most of the real estate in federal government and the contracts. What is less known for, but it's very important part of that agency, it's the only agency outside of the Office of Management and Budget that's authorized to do work across all federal agencies. So anytime there is an initiative that is cross-cutting. That's not a matter of policy that would happen in the Office of Management and Budget. GSA is the implementation arm for that. So the OMB worked with the Congress to construct a law that updated government performance management at the federal agencies. GSA then becomes the agency that assists those agencies in implementing that law. And that's the role that I had at GSA. 
What were the challenges associated with taking something that you obviously were working with a number of people, but you had control or at least guidance over the product versus trying to say, okay, I am now advising all of the other agencies on how they can do the same thing, kind of taking your ideas to scale? Well, I've always a believer, and I think I've mentioned this throughout the narrative here, that the use of data always has to be tailored to the setting it's in, and even more so the personality of the principal. So my mindset has always been to never copy anyone else. Take the principles that make something effective and adapt it. And I had adapted it to a few different settings. And so I would help coach some of the counterparts that I had, would have been counterparts to me at Treasury, and now are people I was trying to help and support at GSA, who were in the 20 largest federal agencies, and help them adapt these principles outlined in the law to their own setting, and to reinforce to them the value of not copying anything you see, but trying to identify the underlying management principles that make it effective and construct something that fits your circumstance. And were there agencies that this was an easier fit for than others? It's always an easier fit when you have an executive who is naturally inclined to value the use of data. And if you have a performance management executive who understands how to take advantage of that interest. But the starting point is rarely the data. The starting point is actually what drives, motivates, and excites the person you're trying to have value and use data every day in their decision making. And what would like an example look like for one of those 20 agencies of basically an effective version of the framework? Most effective versions have a grounding point in a strategic plan the agency has. So for the first year, a lot of that work was oriented around helping agencies update strategic plans that then become the foundations of data-driven reviews, because that orients you to what we're all deciding in an organization is important. So you had some agencies that were highly rigid with their methodology, and I think rigid in an effective way. So they have thought through the logic structure and logic tree of a mission that leads to goals, that leads to perhaps projects with milestones. And there's probably at least a dozen of good manifestations of something like that. So they would have a thoughtful method for how to organize their work, how to decide what priorities are and what data they wanted to collect. You had other agencies that might have an overwhelming singular challenge. So at the time, the Veterans Administration had a very large backlog of individuals who are veterans who are waiting to get benefits, who had been deemed approved for the benefits based on injuries received in the course of serving their country. And that was a singular focus of an entire agency and particularly one division, the Benefits Administration. So their reviews weren't about the dozen most important things. They were focused on how to get that backlog down and the different inputs into the backlog and the barriers they had to loosen to be able to accelerate their productivity. And that is not based on a robust strategic plan. That's based on the urgency of a single problem. And those might be the two bookends. And you had agencies that were then everything in between that. So to continue on this idea of allowing data to inform our decision making, tell me a little bit more about how you became involved with the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team while you were there. So there was a fairly random meeting where there was a woman who worked for the White House Office of Science and Technology who gave a presentation, and I actually forget why I was in the room for it, but it gave a presentation on behavioral sciences and how simple changes to messaging that are very low cost can have transformational effects on outcomes and the evaluations and studies done to demonstrate that. And she was trying to sell a set of concepts that were new to government to different agencies that could use them. I was so intrigued by the presentation that we had coffee some point over the next few days after that initial presentation. And what I found was a really visionary individual who had an idea but no means of really scaling out that idea beyond having 
a set of roadshows in a hoping an agency or federal bureau or division takes hold of it and says, how do I do that? In federal government, what people often don't know is the White House and its various offices have pretty strict controls on how many people they can hire. Uh, Congress, almost no matter which party's in power in either seat of government, typically tries to restrict the number of staff and capacity at the White House. And that was particularly true if you had a Democratic White House and a Republican Congress. And so she couldn't, even with funding, necessarily hire a team to do that. And when I recognized more than the ideas, there was an opportunity to be able to scale out the notion of behavioral sciences to federal agencies. I told her that as GSA, we are one of the only agencies that can work across federal agencies. And I could probably build a home for this idea you have in GSA. That started a long series of conversations about how to build it. Uh, I had to get feedback and approval from my chain of command, mm -hmm. but I had the capacity because there weren't the same kind of constraints on GSA's ability to hire people and build teams. And there were no constraints in our ability to work with every federal agency in government, particularly for an issue that has a common method that has broad applicability. Mm -hmm. So we were a pair, and she was someone who took this set of ideas around. We had philanthropic funding that she had found seed funding for, but no place to put the seeds in the ground because even with outside funding, you still couldn't hire people in the White House context given the constraints on their personnel growth. So those philanthropic seeds could be planted organizationally under me at the GSA. And I'm someone who had a lot of expertise in those first levels, but really I'm not a PhD, I'm not a scientist, and I've never run an evaluation, but I do know how to build teams and get things done in government. And so she provided the vision and technical expertise, and I provided the management wherewithal to be able to construct a team. So we went about the business of starting a team. At this point, without knowing how much demand there was ever going to be for uh, behavioral sciences. So it was called the Social and Behavioral Sciences Team. I think the initial set of individuals that we recruited to come to it, I think we interviewed them at the White House to give them the false impression <laughs> that they would have magical access to the West Wing. Just be giving PowerPoint slides in the Roosevelt Room. In fact, on their first day of work, they actually were going to be told to show up a couple of blocks away to a much more mundane building that housed the GSA. And once people got over that shock of the address, they realized it was still a pretty exciting project. <laughs> and you say a little bit about the growth or experience of that team? Sure. One of the stories I will tell is we did interviews to hire the first employee of what became what we call the SBST. And we interviewed mostly professors who had deep expertise, deep experience in both behavioral sciences, perhaps in economics. And we actually found for that first employee, we hired someone named David Yoakum, who is a good friend of mine who I say was on paper the least qualified, but in reality the most qualified to be the first employee to really build out and manage this team. And part of it is that I think when you're in any organization and you're in a startup, your focus has to be one on what that agency is trying to do and not what you've spent your career trying to prove from a research standpoint. So you have to have a lot of academic flexibility. And I actually found some of the endowed professors that we interviewed had such a narrow interest and passion at that point in their careers that there wasn't a lot of interest in expanding too broadly beyond that. You second have to have a lot of patience and a good sense of humor because we are government and we work in an atmosphere with a lot of rules. Some rules that are really old, but we still have to live by. And it requires the kind of patience and humor you need to be able to get through those hoops and break down the barriers. And David was the perfect person for it. So David started, and then Kelly Bidwell was the second employee that we hired, who is now the head of that office. It's now called the Office of Evaluation Sciences. The change of name is symbolically important. When David and Kelly started to really get to some project work, which means they had agencies that were sold on the concept, excited, and were devoting resources internally to doing it, what we found was that people were interested in the behavioral part of 
what we were trying to sell, but actually far more interested in the science and in the evaluation. And the idea that you can do an evaluation of something without taking three or four years, without spending a fortune. And so that actually became unexpectedly, at least to me, what was the great appeal of this new team. And you suddenly allowed decision makers to not have to make a decision about what was right based on what data they had, but really go try two or three things out and find out in a few weeks or a few months what works best and scale out what works without the cost they normally associated with the large evaluation. And so it became less about the social and behavioral sciences and more about the evaluation of what government does. And that became its name, but before they changed the name, that really reflected what the interest in the work of the office was. The big break they had was one of the first projects dealt with trying to get businesses to voluntarily comply with acknowledging whether or not they had used one of the GSA portals to be able to secure a contract and do business. And at the time, it was voluntary, so they would report their own earnings. And they ran an experiment where they simplified the practice of being able to report your earnings via this website more accurately. And they found there was, a, I think, about a 20% increase in the revenue coming in to GSA based on the percent GSA got from the earnings because people would report more earnings. And it had a turnaround that was not measured in years but weeks. And then after a few weeks, GSA recognized that by spending almost no money, but making simple changes to their format and user interface of a website, they were able to increase the revenue, which was able to take some of the spending pressure off the whole agency. That's when the light bulb really went on for the senior leadership around that department. They recognized that this team that had an interesting and really innovative idea around behavioral sciences became a team that was making very practical changes to how work was done. And two years later, there was enough examples like that, that the core work of that team did not necessitate philanthropic money. It was done through the standard budgeting process of the government. And they've continued to build out and grow and deepen the work that they have. So next, you were given an offer to come here to Washington, D.C., back into local government. But for those of us who have not been offered a position by a mayor before, how does that play out? I don't think there is any common way it happens. I can say <laughs> how it happened for me. So I was in a conference room at the GSA, and I got a call on my cell phone from a number I did not recognize. I answered the phone. I said, hi, this is Kevin. That's how I answer all my phone calls. And I had a voice that I recognized as Muriel Bowser, who had just won the election two days prior, the general election, to become the mayor of D.C. And I recognized it in part because I had been getting robocalls from all the candidates. And I actually thought I was getting a robocall because <laughs> what she said is, hi, my name is Muriel Bowser. And I thought, gosh, this is a bad use of money. You just won the election. But then she said my name and I realized, oh, this is not a robocall. <laughs> And she asked if I would consider coming back to D.C. government without, at that point, knowing what the role would be. And I had missed D.C. government. I loved my federal work, but there's an immediacy to local government that can be addictive because you're working on issues that affect people that you live around and see every day on the streets. So I said yes, not knowing what the role would be. And then I went through a series of multiple interviews with many people, and ultimately with the mayor. And at the end of that was offered a position that really had two hats, the deputy mayor for public safety and justice and the deputy city administrator. And combined, that meant I had oversight over about 18 city agencies that included uh, very large ones like the Metropolitan Police Department and Fire EMS, and also some of the more operational agencies of government, like our agency that builds and maintains buildings, our DMV, Public Works, a small office of human rights, and that's just a small number of the 18 agencies. So it was for me a chance to come back to the city I love, work for a mayor I was really excited by, and get to come back, but not as the data guy, but as someone who was 
in the chair that I was trying to influence five years earlier when I was the data guy and come into an executive role. So now that you're in that chair and you're the principal, or at least the principal for some people, and you obviously still report to the mayor and the city administrator, but how did being the guy at that point affect how you thought about data or evidence or what you needed to be successful? I learned very quickly that is much harder than I think, despite one's best intentions, to be able to have data present when you make decisions. Hmm. And I have a lot of respect for the people who, as a data guy, I was trying to influence and be data-oriented. And it's for things that, at an intellectual level, I knew. So you can be very reactive and responsive in city government. There are figurative and literal fires that burn each day that you have to put out. You're very tactical. The gravitational pull of a city government is tactical. And that doesn't matter if I'm in D.C., L.A., or Tucson, Arizona. It's tactical because it's responding to crisis that you have to respond to. So one of the things that I came to realize is that I need a policy from the data team telling me that I need to look at data, telling me that we have to have performance plans, key metrics, we have to look at evidence. And even though I was a champion of it, it's helpful to have it imposed with a structure and a framework that requires even someone like me to pause and carve out time in a busy week to be able to make sure I'm using data in how I carry out the work that I do. And that was a surprise to me. I was both lucky in who I worked for before, and I also underestimated how hard it is and thought it was because they didn't care. And in fact, you can care. Circumstances pull you very often Mm -hmm. to making decisions when you have to make them and not when you happen to have the data available in front of you to be able to make it well. It doesn't have to be elegant, but it has to be mandatory. And in our case, it is having strategic plans in which we agree to what data we're going to look at from a metric standpoint, having clear goals and objectives in those plans, and having an accountability framework for holding people accountable for carrying out what they say they will do in that year. Having that connected to a budget process that ensures that if you have an objective, there's not a funding gap associated with it, that we're making goals that we know we have funding for. So there's nothing fancy in that. You have almost every jurisdiction has it. The art is whether it sits on a shelf or whether you use it. But being required to have those building blocks makes someone like me who naturally likes using data, having those ingredients to use. And I realized that in the course of a busy month or busy week or busy day, If I'm not forced to have those ingredients at my disposal, I will easily go through the course of that week and never organize myself like that. Since I think you said earlier on in the conversation that, you know, it's very important to limit the number of data points that you are looking at and you care about in your day-to-day work, what are the data points that you care about and want to see regularly? My day-to-day work really focuses nowadays on public safety. And so my primary metric is homicides and how many homicides we have. Now, the data, though, that I want present is not just that, because that is informative, but doesn't really help you diagnose what's happening in the city. Mm -hmm. So you have to peel back beyond the number of homicides in a given year and even beyond how that compares to prior years or prior months or last month and understand the factors that lead to it, the data that surrounds it. So for me and for DC, most of our homicides are gun crimes. And a homicide is someone who's shot who dies. The difference between living and dying from a gunshot wound can be an inch, can be a millimeter, and it can be a lot of luck or lack of luck. And so I wanted to know how many people are shot in DC because that is actually the more indicative indicator of violence and homicide. Now I can peel back from that as well as how often is a gun used in a crime? So a gun crime sometimes is an intentional shooting that was always meant to be, but it often starts as a robbery, as an assault in which someone has a gun or a gun is brandished and it happens to get used. So we can also look at how much crime in which the gun is used in the course of the crime. And each of these have different elements that we're trying to diminish. 
We also like to listen to my police chief and what are detectives seeing that are out there in the field that are the circumstances around the use of the gun. So if you continue this conversation to its end point, you'll collect a lot of data sources, both from traditional data sets and also sometimes from very anecdotal or qualitative depictions of circumstances that you can use to create data around motivation of a shooting to formulate hypotheses and policies for how to mitigate this. And I'll give you an example. So a gun crime becoming a homicide can be a combination of the firepower and the gun itself, the proximity of the shooter to the victim, the availability of ambulance and paramedics to the victim, and the quality of healthcare at the hospital. All those can be separately looked at and measured. So you understand where is there still room to reasonably improve? Where are we at an optimal level of performance? And each of those have a separate set of policies, different legislation, different budget implications that are not connected to each other, but all connected to whether the pulling of a trigger leads to an end of a life. And when we look at the data, firepower, proximity, availability of ambulances, quality of healthcare that they get, we identify which is the most likely to focus on. It's a long way of saying that when I am talking to data scientists and evaluators, a message that I will often give them is sometimes in a career, you're given on a silver platter something to evaluate. That is actually uncommon. Now, you can have a profession where that's all you do, but I think that's limited. The more interesting work is working in all those different levels of data usage. So to go back to the homicides, at some point when we identify the right operational intervention, we can evaluate that perhaps at the randomized control trial. But that's the end of the work to some extent because you have to have diagnosed it. Mm-hmm. You have to have formulated options. You have to have constructed and funded something, you have to have built it out to a level of maturity where you're not going to change it very much, then you can evaluate it within our randomized control trial. But you have to do all that work. And as someone who wants to work it with data, if you limit yourself to only one end of the spectrum or the other, you're limiting your ability to be effective to improve the environment around you. And the most creative and demanding work that I think there is is not in the evaluation. There are scientists that can be hired that can construct it. It's the creativity of diagnosing what the heck you should do to begin with that you might later evaluate. And that is rapidly, fluidly, creatively thinking of talking to people in the residence, talking to people who are impacted by the problem, talking to line employees, looking at data and mixing it all in a mixing bowl to understand what are different hypotheses that we can construct that we still can't evaluate because that's much more mature, but we can have rigorous debate around what to decide on, what to fund, and then later on what to evaluate. And I really encourage people to work in the whole continuum and not just one end of it because you're going to miss out on some of the most interesting creative work there is in this space. Will you give your involvement in the genesis of the lab at DC? I think that's kind of a fun story too. So the lab at DC exists in part because I recognize that as hard as it was to construct that within federal government is much easier to do so in local government because there's no separation of where the work gets done. So all those principles are even more intensively relevant here in local government. Uh, But the commitment that we made actually was in the press conference in which the mayor elected the time was introducing me and about five other new appointees as her second press conference around introducing her new cabinet. And one of the reporters asked a question, well, if all of your new appointees are so good, why don't they give one idea that we haven't heard before that they want to do? And it was a pop quiz. And I went, I think, third. So I had about 30 seconds to think about what my response would be. But when I walked up to the microphone, my brain was blank. I actually didn't know what I was going to say. And without thinking, what came out of my mouth was rapid experimentation. And she looked at me and she smiled and said, huh. Later on, when the city administrator and the mayor asked me, 
what did you mean by rapid experimentation? I gave them the story of what's now the Office of Evaluation Sciences, where we as a government don't have to pick and choose what we think is right. We can pick three things and you can actually rapidly test what you're doing without spending a fortune and getting quick feedback. And that has a universal appeal to anyone who wants to improve what they're doing in their government. And that became the foundational reference point whenever a question was raised as we were raising money to fund the lab at DC. Should we do this? I was able to remind the mayor and the city administrator. It was actually the only thing I said in the whole press conference was two words, rapid experimentation. So we have to follow through in that <laughs> initial commitment. And everyone at the lab at DC has followed through, I think, very ably on that concise vision. We are glad that that's what popped into your head at the moment and internally grateful for it. Well, Deputy Mayor Donahue, thanks for being on the podcast at DC. Thank you. Whatever, thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. We want to know what you think of the podcast at DC, and we want to hear your ideas for what topics we should be covering. Go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC to take part in our listener survey. The link is also in the description of this episode. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents and improve evidence-based governance in DC. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.